0: There's really no way that we can provide a narrative of the United States that's rooted in history as it unfolded that could reasonably exclude the history of slavery.
1: It's hard to imagine any understanding of American history that doesn't account for the practice and legacy of slavery. But in this conversation, scholar Tony Perry sits down with me, Chris Grayton, to talk about one area of the U.S. historiography that has rarely dealt with the issue of slavery, environmental history. We'll talk about the approach of material ecology as a window onto the past, and we'll explore the environmental history of slavery as it appears from the perspectives of enslaved peoples. Join us. Tony, welcome to the program.
0: Well, Thank you very much for having me.
1: Tony Perry is assistant professor of African-American studies at the Carter G. Woodson Institute at University of Virginia in Charlottesville, where we're recording. Tony Perry is an interdisciplinary historian working on a manuscript entitled To Go to Nature's Manufactory, The Ecology of Slavery in Maryland. It examines how the weight of slavery in the Upper South informed enslaved people's relationship to the environment And this project analyzes various ecological relationships, as we'll discuss, between slaves, slaveholders, soils, plants, animals, and weather. Cold weather, specifically, as Tony tells us. And it's very appropriate that we're recording this conversation on the heels. We're just coming out from underneath a huge pile of snow that fell on Charlottesville in December of 2018. A very unseasonable cold. Before we get to... Uh, the specifics of this book project, Tony, I want to ask you to help our listeners understand something that's always puzzled me. Environmental history of the US is extremely important. There's a rich environmental historiography, yet there isn't much written on the relationship between environment and slavery. Why do you think that is? Why has this been absent? And why do you think it needs to change?
0: I think there are uh, a couple reasons why there's a conspicuous absence As it relates to the subject of slavery in the larger historiography of American environmental history, one, I think it has a lot to do with the extent to which the South itself as a region uh, historically has been underexplored and thinking about major topics such as wilderness, the West, the frontier, there are ways in which at the very foundation of American environmental history, the South hasn't hasn't figured largely in that. And then within that, if we're thinking about enslavement, we're also kind of thinking about the agricultural history of the US. And so while relatively recently, more attention to the ways in which agriculture has been at the 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 very foundation of the American economy and the ways in which we really can't think about the environmental history of the US without thinking agriculturally the the recent work in that area has moved more in the direction of 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 slavery that that I think is productive but there's still there's still that kind of work that that has to be done in really exploring the relationship enslaved peoples had to the environments they inhabited. And so that's where my work kind of comes into the conversation. Within that framework, I situate the project. But then also, when we think about American environmental history, we also see, again, relatively recent inroads being made in African-American environmental history. But more times than not, within this nascent conversation, topics tend to be relatively relatively grounded in contemporary questions, problems, and 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 issues. So for example, environmental racism, um questions of 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 access to different kinds of of, of spaces, urban landscapes, more kind of recreational landscapes. And then, you know, the the questions concerning sustainability and whatnot. There are ways in which in in working through these kinds of questions, the historical can get left out, particularly the historical that goes beyond the the 20th century or that precedes the 20th century. And so there are are ways in which I envision my project as a means of historicizing African-American, the African-American people's relationship to the environment, uh, specifically rooted in the 19th and to some extent the 18th centuries.
1: Yeah. And as we said, this is an environmental history of, you know, we said slavery as you're writing, but really mm-hmm. it's focused on enslaved peoples as the actors in the story. Sure. And the framework you use, you call it material ecology. So it's, a, it's a specific subset yeah. of uh, environmental history, uh, let's say. Uh, what do you think, mat- what is material ecology for you? And what does it lend to our study, whether environmental or otherwise, that is often missing?
0: Sure. So material ecology Represents a point of departure, if you will, from material culture studies more broadly in that it retains the the object oriented direction of material culture analyses, but does so in such a way where rather than foregrounding objects as a mode of studying culture, I do so with this, this concept of material ecology to, to study ecological relations. So a kind of object-oriented analysis that discloses relationships between a range of, of ecological phenomena and entities. And in that way, the idea is that there's a way in which we can think about and write history that is very much centered on the human. And if we're thinking about environmental history, there are ways in which we can write and explore and tell history from the perspective or in ways that focuses on the environment or elements thereof. My driving motivation in even configuring what I term material ecology is really or was really to develop an approach that privileged neither the human nor the non-human and thus to navigate however carefully this kind of uh, either a more anthropocentric or or ecocentric project and focusing on, on neither. There are ways in which I can engage both. And so objects become the point of focus and the point of orientation around which I organize each of the chapters for the specific reason or for the specific ways in which they organize a set of relationships between humans and the non-human. And so the idea is that focusing the analytical gaze on the object itself allows one to, in different ways, think about a range of relationships that cohere in the object specifically, but then also in the immediate and then more kind of peripheral space uh, around the object. And so I can get into to more specifics uh, as I imagine we will, but the 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 kind of conceptual argument is that because all objects represent the materialization of human beings interacting with their environment in the very production of the objects themselves, and so materially in the objects, but then also symbolically, you know, for what objects the kinds of meanings objects carry symbolically and then also metaphorically on those three planes, the material, the symbolic, the, the 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 metaphorical, I think about the different ways in which objects organize experiences between enslaved people, slaveholders, and then a range of environmental environmental phenomena.
1: I'm sure some of our listeners who are maybe less initiated in the perspectives of uh, environmental history or, you know, ecology more broadly... We're maybe a little bewildered even <laughs> by that description. Yeah. Uh, but what you're talking about is actually really um, like the value of it is is really evident when we talk about concrete concrete examples. So Absolutely. tell us more about um, the book project. Tell us more about your research. You know, you're studying um, a well-tread ground, the history of enslavement uh, in the United States, but you're studying it from a place that's not typically at the center,
0: Maryland. So the project itself, uh, there are four chapters, each of which is organized around a certain class of objects. So the first chapter um, at the center of, of of that is the cast iron plow. And in that chapter, I'm thinking about the agro-environmental history of, of, of Maryland as a slave state. In the second chapter, the class of objects at the, the center of that are enslaved people's shoes. And so in that chapter, in ways that I can elaborate on, I am thinking specifically about enslaved people's relationship to the climatic environment, specifically cold weather and the different ways in which shoes as a oftentimes inadequate or altogether absent provision for enslaved people contributed to the extent that enslaved peoples suffered in colder parts of the year, which was oftentimes most evident at the sight of their, of their feet. Um, thinking about just being in cold weather for extended periods of time with either no shoes or insufficient shoes that um, provided warmth or, or, or protected from water. These are some of the things that I'm exploring in the second chapter. The third chapter, um, I foreground charms and other kind of spirit objects and, and bundles to think about enslaved people's relationship to the supernatural environment um, so kind of stepping away from the physical, thinking about the spiritual. And then in the last chapter, which is centered around food, specifically stews, I'm developing in that chapter a, a different conceptualization of environment and 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 positing what I'm calling the proximate environment and enslaved people's relationship to the the proximate environment, which is really the environment of what is nearby. Uh, the environment, as constituted by what is within either arm's reach or, or that is ultimately easily accessible in 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 like the space and time of of the present. Um, so, what enslaved peoples could kind of easily get their hands on, as it as it related to, particularly in that chapter, um, plant or animal based. Um, Food items, and so generally, that that that's a, a kind of map of the project. And then Maryland, on many different registers, as one of the the oldest slave states, is 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 rich with historical importance. Being in the upper South, and me thinking about cold weather, you know, um, geographically is useful. The extent to which um, matters of of gender and the ways in which gender informed differently informed enslaved people's relationship to their environment. Maryland, for for different reasons, becomes an important place to study those questions. And then more broadly, in the larger historiography of of enslavement, there are ways in which Maryland has has been underexplored. And so, um, in that respect, wanted to kind of think about the Upper South more broadly in terms of this environmental history.
1: Right. And one of the, the really new things I think this work is doing within that historiography is, you know, you said you have this object-centered approach, material ecology, but you're not focusing on necessarily the main objects that people would think of when they think about the history uh, of slavery and certainly the history of sort of plantation society and economy. You've got these very everyday objects Charms, shoes, mm-hmm. simple one-pot meals, as you call them, in, 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 a, in a paper uh, that we read uh, at UVA. Uh, how, what inspired you to pursue this avenue and really look at those quotidian objects? Is this something that arose from the sources, or how'd you get
0: there? So a couple things. One. I knew that in my project, although I wanted to write an environmental history of slavery, ultimately, I knew that it was going to be about enslaved people, specifically enslaved people's relationship to the environment, how that relationship compared to to slaveholders and how different dimensions of social identity within the community of the enslaved, how these different elements of identity inform different enslaved people's relationship to their environment. So in that way, it was important that I find a mode of engaging everyday experiences of the enslaved, everyday encounters, everyday interactions with their environmental world. So if we're thinking about landscape in particular cultivated landscapes uncultivated landscapes the built landscape if we're thinking about whether how did slavery look different how did labor on a plantation look different when it was subfreezing when there you know was accumulated snow on the ground in what ways in what ways did the kind of Good luck charms that enslaved peoples carried for a means of protection or or healing um, how did that play out in their everyday lives? So as I'm trying to to think about the everydayness of enslaved people's lives and the extent to which the environment itself manifests and not only enslaved people's lives but 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 all people's lives on an everyday basis in ways that typically are pretty mundane and quotidian, it only made sense for me to orient each chapter around objects that kind of fit within the larger lens of the everyday or the mundane. And I should also note that although each chapter is oriented around a class of objects, it's not as if those objects represent the sole focus of of the chapter, they they really provide starting points to explore the relationships that cohere in and around the objects, as I mentioned earlier, on on material planes, symbolic planes, and and metaphorical planes.
1: Right, but it, it is a very different starting point, and it makes I want to know more about your sources because depending on the sources you use, mm. you couldn't really get access to more than sort of the most conventionally economic questions, which are largely mm. representing the concerns of slaveholders mm-hmm. and, and people who do business with them, right? right? And these probably aren't the concerns of enslaved people. Like they might not be that much invested in the the product if they're being right. forced to do labor. Right. So how did you get at the material ecology? What kind of sources did you use? Are these textual sources, or did you have to go beyond the textual archive?
0: I started with the textual archive and from there began noting a range of of objects that either kept coming up across either interviews with former formerly enslaved peoples or enslaved narratives and then from there went to other i guess more traditional sources so plantation records slaveholder diaries uh, newspapers almanacs things of that nature but but the space in which I think the most kind of surprising source material emerged had to do with um, the archaeological uh, source record and so and so for example in the in the charms chapter where I'm thinking about enslaved people's relationship to the supernatural environment over all, all over Maryland as well as, several other slave states different archaeologists or teams of archaeologists have begun uncovering what they widely consider to be either spirit bundles or or spiritual like caches the kind of terminology goes so so items that have been or were buried in very intentional and specific portions of either slave quarters or the homes of slaveholders so more times than not points of points of entry or points of 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 of, of movement, different thresholds, so doors uh, at the base of stairs in in chimneys um at the base of windows. so any any space where both people and or, you know, spirits could could enter enter and exit and in these spaces finding very specific configurations of objects placed in ways that, don't speak to them kind of by happenstance either being discarded or kind of lost and as as these different objects have been uncovered we are getting increasingly provocative and and fascinating glimpses into enslaved people's lives who drew on the spiritual for a range of purposes including healing, harming, protecting And so as it concerns the archaeological record, um, that is figured into the project in ways that I didn't anticipate initially, but but that has been quite impactful.
1: Yeah. A historian might not think of spirits as part of the environment. It's not, you think about water, soil, these types of things that are typically the object of environmental studies, but... You know, environment is constructed by the people who live in it. And of Absolutely. course, that's, a, that's something that comes out of trying to look at the material culture of the lived spaces of enslaved people, which is not to say that these are trivial items that are only relevant to those people. As I understood from your work, Slaveholders were conscious of the supernatural world uh, that enslaved peoples like believed in and were in touch to, in mm-hmm. touch with, and these could be polit- political objects in some cases.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and and it's also important to note. So while many of the objects, while many of the objects are in some way related to conjure, conjure related practices, or what some other scholars call hoodoo. There are ways in which, in just like the broader spectrum of spiritual or religious belief, the supernatural manifests um, in the in the everyday. So, if we think about Judeo-Christian uh, practices um, and the kind of um icons or objects that 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 attend or associated with um more more traditional faith systems the the ways in which objects relate to religious practice and faith is not something that would have been uncommon to slaveholders or enslaved peoples almost regardless of the kind of um spiritual systems that 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 they were committed to. And so it just so happens that in the world of conjuring and in the and in the broader understanding of how to channel forces emanating from the spiritual, that um that that objects were understood in such a way where they needed to be concealed, oftentimes in the ground, in the earth itself, to kind of activate that power. And in being left there, indefinitely, we now in the present have, you know, some access to these items in ways that we, we may not f- um, for for other kinds of items that 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 weren't used or utilized in, in similar ways. Mm, fascinating. An example of how the need to keep
1: a secret actually helped create an archive for historians. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's take our listeners a little bit deeper into your methodology. Okay. We we can't talk about the whole book, although, (laughs) uh, you know, we we all look forward to reading it. I thought I'd ask if you could offer a brief material ecology Mm -hmm. of stews or the the meals of enslaved people, these one-pot meals you talk about, uh, because they kind of bring together a lot of different uh, sets of relations with the environment and, and between people.
0: Sure, sure. So... Starting out on the level of the material and then going to the symbolic and the metaphorical, on the material level, if we're thinking about stews and we're thinking about what it takes to to make stews, at a very basic level you need, or most commonly enslaved peoples used, plant-based organisms, animal-based organisms when, when, when possible, water, and then different you know kinds of spices. And so in the In the project, I focus on the ways in which enslaved peoples procured food as a means of supplementing food provisions from slaveholders, which are oftentimes inadequate for for enslaved individuals. And so there are a range of ways in which enslaved peoples procured food, whether it was by growing their own food, foraging for food out out in the the woods, hunting, uh, trapping, fishing, other modes of, of of exchange, so gifting, buying, and selling, uh, trading, and so with these different modes of, of of acquiring food items, all of those speak to different kinds of relationships to the environment um, that 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 would necessarily inform enslaved people's everyday lives. So, if we think about hunting in particular, with that comes a a kind of knowledge of the uncultivated landscape um beyond the beyond the the boundaries of, of the plantation, and we see that in many instances enslaved individuals who hunted rather consistently developed a very detailed knowledge of the physical landscape and so and which could be utilized in a range of moments including escape And so in thinking about all of what, went into the pot of stew and the and the different kinds of relations to the environment that that these items speak to um, represents a kind of like material like the material basis for my my own analysis. On a more symbolic level, stew stands in for represents really food in general that enslaved peoples consumed. And what we're thinking about food itself, food necessarily speaks to enslaved people's relationship to to plants and animals, whether it's cultivating, you know, crops or like raising animals, but then also the extent to which the environment itself is being metabolized in the process of consuming food, the ways in which enslaved peoples are, the ways in which their lives are intimately tied to the cultivated and uncultivated environment by way of, Plants and animals. Um, symbolically, I begin kind of thinking through, thinking through these kinds of, of registers, and then on a on a more metaphorical level, the pot of stew at the end of the day really does represent going to my idea of the proximate environment, it really does stand as a, a microcosm of the immediate environment in which enslaved peoples were living, particularly particularly as it concerned those items that enslaved peoples were, were procuring um on their own. So in 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 the pot itself is almost a reconstitution of the environmental world that enslaved women and men inhabited interacted with and, in, and encountered on a daily basis and so in these ways you know these these different planes orient or kind of guide my analysis and and become the space in which i i delve into stew as material ecology or as the materialization of a range of of different ecological uh, relationships,
1: right, and it's a materialization of ecological relationships in a very intimate place. Mm. Mealtime, absolutely. If, if not communal, which it often would be communal, absolutely. It's family level, so there's a whole set of uh, human relations that go into the pot as well.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Now, one other thing I wanted to ask you about because you've you've given it such a prominent place in the description of your project is the issue of cold. I've taught a course on climate history. At UVA this semester and it's been a very wide-ranging course but looking out at the historiography of climate one tends to notice that certain roles for climate in human history especially operating at the macro level over the long durée are kind of forefronted and I thought looking at climate as part of everyday life looking at cold as you say uh, was a really unique and and more rare uh, approach Uh, so tell us more about how that became so important for your study and how it further sheds light onto the material ecology of enslaved people.
0: The focus on enslaved people's experiences in cold weather emerged from something that I recognized relatively early in the, in the research for, for this project. And that was the extent to which slavery was represented as a discursively represented as a hot weather institution um, the extent to which, when we're thinking about movies, television, even even books, this almost kind of given image of an enslaved person, an enslaved person picking cotton under the let's say watchful gaze of an overseer, with the sun out and kind of like beating down on them, as a almost quintessential image of enslavement, where for A substantial proportion of enslaved people, there were portions of the year where that just, you know, couldn't be the case. Um, Not only because, you know, cotton wasn't the staple crop across the the slave South, but also because in many slave states there were portions of of the year where, let's say like right now in, in Charlottesville, where there's snow on the ground, where, you know, temperatures dipped below freezing, where the cultivation of crops either s- slowed down or, or or ceased altogether, and so thinking about just different experiences or different images of enslavement that that en- that that enslaved peoples encountered, you know, regularly, that kind of prompted this this question of well, what does slavery? What did slavery look like when it was cold outside? Um, when when the ground was was freezing or or frozen when snow was falling and so that 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 got my thinking moving in that direction and then i began seeing primarily in in textual sources the extent to which enslaved peoples when they were either commenting on writing about their experiences during the winter oftentimes mentioning their feet Mentioning the extent to which they had to 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 try to protect their feet from the cold, um, protect their feet specifically in terms of um, um, from their feet getting uh, um, frostbitten and then kind of cracked or scarred, and and also just in terms of keeping the body warm um, and heat escaping at the at the point of the feet and and the heads, just kind of like in this larger effort to endure the cold, keeping the feet um dry and and as warm as possible. So that's where the direction of that uh, of that chapter comes from. And and then within that as I'm thinking about enslaved people's feet as a point where we can really kind of read their vulnerability to cold weather, um that's how I get to to thinking about shoes as objects and the ways in which if we fix our gaze initially on shoes, we 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 can begin exploring this relationship between the enslaved person the enslaved body and the weather. And then from there, I engage different ways in which slaveholders recognized enslaved people's vulnerability to the cold and sought to take advantage of that, um, oftentimes in different modes of, of enacting violence against enslaved peoples, but then also the ways in which enslaved peoples themselves could leverage cold weather against slaveholders. So for example, during times of escape, Um, Part of my project identifies the extent to which enslaved peoples escaped during the winter compared to other seasons, and uh, 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 a substantial portion did escape um, from December to February. And so thinking about and analyzing why that was, uh, there were a range of reasons, some of which included the extent to which daylight was shorter and thus you know like nighttime is longer during the winter and um with enslaved people's commonly commonly resting during the day and and making their way north at night that was useful also during the winter the likelihood of crossing frozen bodies of water and not having to wade through or swim through water was another factor that made wintertime escapes Um, attractive and then and then another very important one was just the extent to which the cold decreased the likelihood of people being outdoors um, and limited the amount of people who were outdoors who you know could be potential alarm signalers on you know just different parts of of the landscape and so with um, fewer eyes out and about who could kind of raise questions or be suspicious or alert, the, you know, alert whatever authorities may be nearby, um, these things all kind of contributed to how the enslaved could leverage the cold itself, but then also what happened during these times of the year against those who sought to um, or who were in some way invested in their enslavement.
1: Well, there are a lot of broader questions we can ask about sort of the the larger significance of this experience of enslavement as so far as it relates to material ecology. Um, Perhaps the question I want to conclude with is one for you as you yourself are from Maryland. Yes. And so this is, you're studying events and experiences that have played out in the same landscapes and same society that you're familiar with. How did enslaved people's ecology shape what has become the united states of today Mm. i guess in, in this case
0: that's a good question i would say a couple of things one on a pretty broad level as we think as we think about environmental history as we think about what what constitutes environment as you noted earlier both for historians but then also for Many scientists who study uh, ecosystems um, or you know, the environment writ large, the extent to which the supernatural is even considered as a viable dimension of the environment is 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 not a major point of 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 focus or, you know, really doesn't get that much attention. Or the extent to which for enslaved peoples the the spiritual environment was a, an extremely important dimension of the environment as they knew it and encountered it, this, this, this kind of tension raises an important question or at least an important point of consideration for us kind of thinking and working contemporarily. And that is, and that's this, that there are ways in which some of our conceptions of environment can absolutely disclose important dimensions of the past. So if we think about the environment in terms of enslaved people's lives as, let's say, a a hybrid or hybridized entity um, that was the byproduct of natural and cultural phenomena interacting, um, shaping one another, and, and, and co-constituting one another, these things... These things disclose important dimensions of the environment, of the built, the 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 cultivated, the uncultivated, the climatic environments that enslaved peoples inhabited. On the other hand, there are ways in which contemporary investments can disclose or foreclose elements of enslaved peoples' environments. So as we don't often think about the spiritual or the supernatural, one may not be inclined to think about that in relation to enslaved peoples or... Even peoples today who, who, who invest in some way, shape, or form in a supernatural environment as an important element of, of their everyday lives. So these questions of of definition and conceptualization, I think, on a on an analytical level, come to the fore and 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 invite a kind of reckoning with uh, on more on a, on a more material basis or on a more material level, I would say that environmentally, there are dimensions of, even if we take the physical landscape, let's say, and if we take the physical and cultural landscape of the University of Virginia, there are several, plenty places on campus that, that we could go to right now that were built by enslaved peoples, um, that, that enslaved peoples providing forced labor constructed and that we continue to interact with and and benefit from, you know, on a daily basis. And in that way, this environmental history or this ecology of slavery is not rooted squarely in the past. It, it continues to exert itself over time into the present and will continue to do so even if we got to the point where all physical Dimensions of, let's say, the University of Virginia or the United States of America, even if we got to a point where where where, where like the physical record itself uh, didn't speak to or was kind of like erased from, you know, just the 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 present day. When we think about culture, when we think about the economical, when we think about The history of the United States leading up to the Civil War and beyond, there's really no way that we can provide a narrative of the United States that's rooted in history as it unfolded that could reasonably exclude the history of slavery. There are and so there are different levels at which we can kind of think about the very present history of enslavement in the U.S. and then specifically the very present environmental history of slavery in the U.S.
1: Well, Tony, thank you for coming on the program.
0: Thank you for having me. I had a great time. We also want to thank
1: our listeners for tuning in. Check out our website, OttomanHistoryPodcast.com. We've got a bibliography up there. Tony's provided us with some of the key uh, background reading uh, for understanding uh, this work. That's all for this episode. Join us next time.